Peter Thomas Fornital here. We at In The Money Media are so happy to be partnering with Maggie Wolfendale on this new podcast series. On these shows, Maggie is telling the story of the horses through the voices of the people who love them and whose lives have been changed by them. Best of all, they're being produced to benefit our friends at the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation, whose mission of saving lives, both human and equine, is so important to Maggie and so important to us at the network. To make a gift to support this show and the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation, go to trfinc.org slash offtrack. That's trfinc.org slash offtrack. The next voice you hear will be Maggie Wolfendale. Gelding fold April 6, 2010, in Pennsylvania, by Ecclesiastic, out of Tiger Bell, by Tiger Ridge. 20 lifetime starts, 3 wins, 1 second, 1 third. Earnings, $69,193. Jockey Club name, Dover Point. This is his story, off track, told by Danielle Montgomery. So pleased to be joined by my guest this week, Danielle Montgomery from the Turning for Home program uh, offered by the Pennsylvania Thoroughbred Horsemen's Association. And Danielle, thank you so much for obviously coming on Off Track this week, but everything you do for um, the OTTBs in Pennsylvania. Oh, thank you for having me, Maggie. I'm excited to talk to you. So let's, as we always do, let's start from the beginning. And I always find it so interesting to, because I I only know you from the times I get to come to parks um, and, and all the work that you do uh, with Turning for Home, but I don't know you like some of my other guests. And I always find it really interesting to hear where people's life with horses began. So what's yours? Horses have always been a part of my life. I joke that I inherited the horse gene, which you know what that's like. You inherit the horse gene. And horses just for some reason spark in that little girl, you know. Um, I was that little girl that used to cut out the little Marlboro Man horses from the backs of magazines when I was a little girl and, like, put them around, like, the you know. I think Elizabeth Taylor in the pie had her, like, box of horses. So I inherited it. My great-grandmother had horses in no- Nova Scotia when she was a kid. So I came by my horse team, honestly. Um, so, you know, always my father rode rodeo and had horses growing up, had his own barn before he went into the army. So I luckily had family that had horses and, um, and that's what I was doing. I was with my dad when I actually was introduced to horse racing and you know, going back to the little cutouts, I remember cutting out like genuine risk when she was that filly that won the Kentucky Derby. And I remember my mom telling me about, you know, watching Secretariat. Obviously, I was a baby as, you know, nine years old when Secretariat won. But I remember my mom telling me about Secretariat and, you know, and I just remember cutting out, you know, genuine risk. But I didn't know anything about horse racing. I wasn't in a horse racing family. 
but I grew up doing gymkhana and barrels and poles and um, just, you know, always loved the timed events. My family wasn't wealthy. So I did try English riding a little bit when I was very young. And I just, and to this day, I don't like being judged. I just, so for me, racing and barrel racing and team panning and sorting, anything where I'm racing the clock, that's kind of my passion. I just feel like it's fair. And that's what I love about racing. Well, ironically, I think you're my 14th episode and you are the first one that I've talked to that has more of an interest apart from the racetrack in a west in western disciplines. Uh, so I'm really excited to talk to you about that and I I like that you know racing against the clock as you said it is of the utmost fairness I think and it's it's completely objective instead of being subjective. So Talk a little bit about, though, your introduction to the racetrack and how that began and how that snowballed into what you're doing now. Absolutely. I, I kind of still remember the day, although I can't remember the name of the gentleman that took me to Atlantic City Racetrack, um, David. I can't remember his last name. But I was at a, at a game show in South Jersey, and uh, the closest racetrack to us, we were kind of in between Atlantic City and Parks, but you know, I was, it was, it del- I'm in the, I'm in the crossfire between Delaware Park, Atlantic City and Park Racing or the former Philadelphia Park. And uh, David and his girlfriend were at the game show with us. And um, he was looking for somebody to work summers. And I was 17 years old. And he's like, you know, I just got my driver's license. He's like, would you like to come work with the horse tracks? I had no idea. I'd never been on the backside of a track before. So I started literally Everybody says, oh, we, you know, it's a joke around the racetrack that we start as hot walkers. And then at the end of our career, we're hot walking horses, right? <laughs> so, that is so true. <laughs> right. You know, there's so many trainers that, they, you know, they're old. They come out, they walk the horses, they stay healthy walking the horses. But I actually started lower than a hot walker back then was the machine girl. And it was the dreaded job with these giant Centurion MagnaWave machines and back then they were all cords and there was this huge machine that they put in a shopping cart that they got from somewhere. And I literally had to push a shopping cart from stall to stall to stall and put these big, you know, centurion blankets and the magna waves on the horse's legs. And everybody hated that job because the horses would bite the wires and, you know, they, you know, come over you and, and the machines were expensive. So if a wire got broken, you know, you'd have to send it to the guy to get fixed and then you had downtime and you couldn't use it. So uh, I worked for Mark Lyon, Atlantic City. We were a uh, leading trainer that year. I remember, you know, getting the trophy with a horse named Spruce Me Up when the, the last race of the meet, I think it was against Joe Orsino, who I later worked for as an assistant trainer. But it was Mark Lyon and we were, you know, going for the uh, training title for that summer meet Atlantic City. Um, you know, back in the day, it was so fun back there. We had, I had, I had so much fun being a kid. And I went back and I did it for like the next three years. I would, you know, go to school, you know, I was in high school. And then the summers I would go meet up with Mark and I graduated from machine girl to hot walker. And then um, I went to school one semester at Widener. And I, and that summer when I went back to work for Mark, I'm like, you know, I, I, I don't want to go back to school. I wanted to be with horses. So I ended up traveling with them to Florida and spent a couple of years, you know, so it basically started at the beginning you know, as a machine girl. And then I worked my way up. I was, you know, the, the groom and then the um, assistant trainer. I ended up coming back to parks or coming to parks in the early 90s with Ed Broom. And I worked for him for five years and he taught me so much. 
he was such a good ethical trainer and I learned how to gallop for him. And like I said, I learned to, you know, be assistant trainer. And, and then I started uh, going to Florida for the winters. I had a boyfriend. So I went to Florida one winter and learned to gallop the babies. I was excited, loved riding, riding still my favorite job on the racetrack. Uh, and exercise riders, you know, is the, is the best job. You know, you get out there you get to actually enjoy the horses every morning. And, you know, I still probably my favorite memory to this day. My favorite thing about racing is that early morning gallop, you know, on a foggy day when the fog is like all over your eyelashes and all you can hear is that, you know, some, you know, that gallop down the lane. That's still to my day, my favorite memory. And probably I don't I don't know if I want to get on the racehorses anymore, but I would probably get on a pony and love that again galloping in the mornings. It's truly the best. It's my favorite uh, as well. And I'm still lucky enough to get to do it. And it's funny you say that about the fog because there's something, you know, so uh, to not sound corny, but magical about feeling like you're alone with a horse that's so powerful and at a gallop. And sometimes even when it's not foggy and I'm on like a really nice horse that I trust and know, and there's not too many people around because at Belmont there isn't on the main track and close your eyes and just yes. feel the rhythm. Yeah. It's just the yes. best feeling. And honestly at parks, they don't let you go out in the track in the dark anymore. So I guess the riders right here don't even do it because you know we'd be out and you know how it was, you always get on your toughest horse first thing in the morning, that old tough one. <laughs> so you could get around. He wouldn't want to run off in the fog and like, be geese across the track and stuff. But it is. It's probably the most magical thing on the on the racetrack. But absolutely. But yeah. So I I I did a little bit of everything. I left. You know. So I went to Florida. Um. You know. I did the farm. I did the sales for a little bit. You know. We would. You know. Get break the babies and you know get them and then take them to Kentucky to the sales. So I got to do that when I was young. So I, I was very lucky. The racetrack blessed me with that opportunity to travel when I was very young and, you know, get to go up and down the East coast and out to Kentucky. And I mean, I treasure that because, you know, later on when I, you know, came home and had a family, it was, I still have all those memories. And I think traveling at a young age um, helps you settle down, you know, cause I know like where I am now is where I want to be. I like, I love living in South Jersey. I love being two hours from New York or Washington or, you know, half an hour from the ocean and, from Philadelphia. So there's always something to do. And there's always this is a very busy, fun area. And I'm blessed to live here. But I wouldn't know that if I hadn't traveled different places that, you know, home is still for me, home is home. So that's kind of a good thing. But yeah, so, you know, I did a little bit everything on the racetrack. And like I said, that I got just enthralled with this breed. And because of growing up doing Western riding, of course, you know, when I got my thoroughbreds, like I, I, you know, I had pony horses over the years and I did have my trainer's license for a short time and won some races and took some of those horses home with me, you know, as my ponies. So, I mean, I was always, you know, always had a horse. I think from the, I mean, I had a horse since I was 12, but I always had a thoroughbred probably from like second year on the racetrack. Always had like that one horse at home that I would ride and, and teach them to do the, the gaming and the trail riding. And, you know, my kids grew up in front of me on a saddle on a off track thoroughbred, you know, falling asleep in my lap while we were trail riding. And, you know, I, there's, you know, we were just blessed, blessed to be around these amazing horses our whole life. What a great life you've carved out. That's just a, a kind of fairy tale as far as the racetrack um, and the life that it's created for you. So um, good for you. That's, it's really amazing. So as you said, always taking a thoroughbred off the track 
how has that led you to your current role? I was off the track for, like I said, 10 years. I had a farm. Um, I still worked for, um, when my kids were very young, I worked for Joan Beasy at his family farm in South Jersey. So I still kept, like I said, best job on the racetrack was galloping. So even when I had my, my kids were young, I could go to the farm, got a couple of horses. I was only gone a couple, you know, hours a day, but you made great money. So, um, I would come back and I would do that. And, um, we bought a farm, you know, so I, I have a nice 25 acre farm in South Jersey. So, you know, I just always had a horse coming home and, you know, we would always try and find them good homes. You know, you know, somebody would call me and I have this horse, you know, so I like said, try to keep it small and take one at a time. I would do some rehabs from the tracks and bows and stuff like that. And then when the horse was retired, finally, they'd say, do you want the horse? So I'd always had one or two. Um, but when I took that break with my family, I started working um, in an office for a construction company. And it was great. It was a great job because it was five miles from my children's school. I, I have three kids. So I was like, I was able to be like the, the class mom and the basketball mom and go to all the football games and do everything and work close. And I was able to get a good education in, you know, business administration and office work and learn from the best at CNH Industrial. So when this my husband got hurt in 2012 is what happened. And um, so he had to, you know, take some time off. He, got, he was in a, a work accident. And so I came back to parks. I was like, well, I need to do something because, you know, he's not going to be able to work for a while. And I was worried about insurance, stuff like that. So I actually came back to parks because that's where I was for so long. And I thought about being a vet assistant. You know, I talked to Dr. Dan Hanf and a few of the vets here. And then I heard that this job had opened up. And so I submitted my resume right away. I was like, oh, okay, that sounds like me because we're tiring horses and I have the business experience now. That sounds like a perfect match. And so I did. I interviewed um, with Mr. Belezzi and Connie Human, who I knew Connie from, you know, when I was here when I was young. So I kind of came back and I still had a lot of friends here, Phil Aristone and uh, Frank Lara. And I mean, a lot, you know, you know how it is at the racetrack, you know, you kind of, you come here and you, and you stay here till forever. You don't need to retire. So I was very blessed. I interviewed and I, and I got this job back in 2013 and uh, it was, the program was only like five years old at that time. And uh, I luckily was hired and I've loved it ever since I, I get to do what I love every day. So it's been a fantastic journey here at turning for home. Well, and to talk about Turning for Home, because it was kind of one of the first programs started by a racetrack to support its horses that needed to find second careers or new homes away from the track. And over the years, you guys have helped over 3,200 horses find new homes. But talk about the structure of it, because it's this self-funded kind of big circle um, of life, if you will, for the horsemen at parks. Yeah, that's the genius of Mike Belezzi. Um, Mike Belezzi is actually getting ready to retire soon, and he's been here for 25 years. And every program that he started here at Parks Racing is successful because he thinks them through. And what he saw was that um, previously uh, established organizations, um, I mean, New Vacation is still going strong and it's great, but some of these some of these programs got kind of too big for their britches. Um, he knew right away um, that the idea of just providing sanctuary for the horses, and he's like, it's not going to work for the amount of horses that need to retire from parks racing. And he knew, you know, the owners here, it's a, it's a claiming racetrack. Um, you know, the, the horses here, the owners here, 
are in this game. Very few owners actually have their own farms. You know, I don't know what the percentage is, say maybe 25% actually have their own farm. So where are these horses going to go? We need to do the retraining program, like New Vacations had already done a retraining program. Finger Lakes Finest had started, um, you know, up north. And he's like looking at these programs and talking to, he brought in a couple other, you know, organizations um, that were already retiring horse from the track. Obviously, people have been retiring horse from the track like I had been for years and years and years. They know how amazing these thoroughbreds were, especially in the hunter jumpers. So he knew that this could work. He knew that there was a market for the horses and he wanted to do something that the horsemen could support and afford to keep going. And that's where that funding mechanism came in, where he said, I'm not paying day rates for these horses leaving. We're going to give them a one-time stipend phase so that the people that are already taking horses from the track will also take the rehabs. And really, and that's pretty much where he wanted to fund because the big, sound, nice horses, they already leave the racetrack. The quality horses that are going to the breeding shed, they're taken care of. It's the horses that were getting injured, the horses that just, you know, maybe the Plain Bay fillies we always laugh about, that I always take the Plain Bay fillies, especially the little ones that can do barrels and poles. Um, but, you know, his his thought process was, you know, how can we do it, afford it? And he really thought it through before he put, you know, our program in action. And it hasn't changed much, you know, in, in all these years, 15, 14 years it hasn't changed much, and that's because he did it right the first time. And even now, the TAA has kind of taken on our model of, you know, t- of doing a placement with each horse, and that's what's what's nice about it. And and Mike's philosophy was always, we will take every horse, um, we will place them, you know, and follow these organizations. Try to create nonprofits. Try to, you know, create farms that, you know, start with people we trust again that are already doing this that know what they're doing. And, and help them be successful, you know, and that's been his point all along is, you know, follow the horses, um, always take any horse back for any reason, you know, and with the horsemen at the track, always make sure there's no excuse for them not to want to do the right thing by the horse, you know, make sure that they know that we're here, that we're not going to accept um, anything less than them finding a good place for the harm for, you know, to teach the trainers to do their due diligence and make sure any horse that leaves the track is actually going to a real farm. You know, there was back then there was things on the paper with Kelsey Lefevre and, you know, horses, you know, going, you know, to the kill pen and, and, you know, and the trainers, honestly, a lot of times didn't know. They thought they were giving the horse to somebody coming here, you know, to take a horse for the kid. And they thought they were doing the right thing. But the trainers that are here and the owners, they're busy. I mean, this is already, the racetrack's already a full-time job. They're here 4 a.m. in the morning. They've got races in the afternoon. Sometimes they're racing at night, traveling. So they don't have the time and they don't have the knowledge to be able to place the horses you know, carefully and successfully. So that's what Turning for Home was born to do is to be that mediator between the good rehab farms and um, the trainers. So we're like that middle person and it's it's working. And what I find great about Turning for Home is that you guys, as you mentioned, will take any horse back that isn't working out, and then you, you hold them, you reevaluate them, and, and then try to find them, you know, a second second home, if you will. Oh, absolutely. I think there's probably some horses going to go to RRP this year that, you know, went to the first home and it just didn't work. And there's a lot of times all the horse that's not working out in a certain adoptive situation, all they really need is just a change of situation. And it's no, it's no harm, it's no foul. Maybe your program isn't right for that horse at that time. You know, horses that first year off the racetrack aren't going to do well turned out in a field. You know, maybe 
that second, third year, you know, or depending on where they are, if they're, if they're babies that, you know, third, you know, a young two-year-old, three-year-old, they could probably go right out. But a horse that's been on the track till he's nine, 10 years old, um, that takes more careful, you know, mental rehabilitation for the horse. He can't just get kicked out. You know, some of those horses go out for an hour and they're like pacing the fence, mom, bring me back in, you know? So a lot of times if somebody returns a horse, it's not anything on them. It's just that horse needs a different situation, different feed, different turnout, different schedule, you know, uh, different discipline. So, you know, we take them back and, you know, I try to follow the horses and I know a little bit about them here, you know, it's first question that I ask, you know, with the trainer, you know, aside from like, Hey, injuries now, well, how does he gallop? You know, what's he like? And, you know, and I'll go visit that horse four or five times before he leaves the track and I'll talk to, and the grooms give you, you know, the heads up on what's up with the horse. And then I'll follow that horse and I'll try to place it with the farm where he will fit good physically and mentally. And then I love my farms. My farms make the rest of it easy. They, they follow, they help. Um, any of my farms, if I call them up and I say, Hey, we have to get this horse back and you're the closest farm, you know, they make room um, and they figure it out. And if they get the horse in and it doesn't fit their program, you know, our whole farm group will come together and they'll be like, you know, this horse probably needs this kind of situation. Can this farm fit that, you know, and then we'll move the horse around again until he gets what he needs mentally as a good place to go. And then of course, you know, the vet, the vet work just goes with it. You just always do the right thing with the vet work and, and turning for home pays for that, for the forms. Talk about a village. I mean, yeah, you guys have really built something special within the state of Pennsylvania for these horses. And it, it's really to be respected. And I like, I like that whole farm kind of community that you're talking about. And wow. for you, as far as your team, you know, at, at parks, you know, kind of on at home base, what do you have, like a, a card for every horse that you fill out so you know, like, basically all their ins and outs and characteristics and former injuries? How do you keep track of all these horses? We actually have an online file that I can update right from my phone. I We have, it's, you know, a base, it's like a, a base camp. It's like a, a program management software. And so, you know, as the trainer puts that horse in, he fills out that form and he tells me, you know, all the ins and outs of like, you know, major medical and then my first call is always to their treating veterinarian. Okay, hey, um, this trainer just put this horse in. What do we know about it? Do we have any, you know, diagnostics? And they and they're great. And other vets um, here at Parks are extremely supportive. I couldn't do it at this level without them because they get back to me right away. And you know, if we need something, you know, if the trainers, you know, sometimes the owners, you know, are at a point where they're okay. Well, we've already just claimed this horse for all this money, and I put all this time into it, and I'm just like cut out. I'm done. So turning for home pays for, you know, any diagnostics that are not already taken. So we'll go and we'll get the x-rays, the ultrasounds. We send them out to Mid-Atlantic um, Equine Clinic. Generally, um, Dr. Yannick and Dr. Time are fantastic and, and just donate their time to read and to advise us. Um, uh, we have Dr. Laredo here as our program vet at the track level. So I don't have to make any of those tough decisions. I just get gather all the information I give it to the veterinarians and they tell me, okay, this is, you know, the protocol for this horse. This is what we're going to do with this horse. Um, if, if surgical intervention is going to help the horse have a second, a better second career, we'll do that. Um, you know, we do, you know, castrations and throat operations. We even had to take out a horse's eye this year, <laughs> which Aww. was a first for me in all these yeah. years. And Inky Dinky Doo is at our track um, facility and about to be adopted. So, oh, you know, cool. so yeah, whatever is going to help the horse, you know, we'll, we'll do that. And like I said, we have a great team here. Um, 
I have Danny Gibson, who you've met, you know, that she does our, our parks, uh, social, our media, all of our media now. Um, so she's great. She helps me in the office in the mornings. And, you know, we, we just do everything we can to figure out what the horse is capable of. And then we decide, you know, we talk with the farms, probably the most time that I spent is just, yeah, discussing these horses with my partner farms and figuring out, you know, where's the best place for them to go for rehab, who has room, who, who's capable of taking, you know, the stallions or the tough things, you know, um, which farms are going to do better with the trail horses and the lower level horses, you know, kind of the whole gist of it is just trying to figure out what's the best place for them. And like I said, my team is absolutely amazing. I couldn't do anything without them on my partner farms and the, and the vets and the whole team. Well, Danielle, you mentioned that you have your own farm, which is amazing. I'm kind of jealous. But on your farm, how many horses do you have currently? <laughs> if you don't tell my husband. <laughs> he doesn't um, venture no. out there much. <laughs> <laughs> he, we, we always joke that we get horses the same color and we kind of move them around a lot. So he never gets an accurate count. <laughs> um, I, I usually have around 10, 11 horses on my farm at any given time. And, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, we talked when you were here, we talked about my Dover and he's the, you know, my heart horse that I brought back from turning for home. Oh gosh, six years ago now, seven years ago. And so, you know, he's a permanent fixture. I still have my 30 year old horse, um, that actually I used to pony with on the racetrack here. Um, What's his name? His name is the Fox. His name is the Fox. He's a, a appendix quarter horse that I got as a barrel horse. Um, yeah, 25 years ago. And so he, he actually spent about four years on the racetrack with me here at Delaware park and at here at parks. And even at a time when I was just buying my farm and, and funds were low, he actually came here with Carol Oxman. It was a pony. They took care of him for a while. And that was when nine 11 hit. I remember, yeah, talk about story. I was coming up from Delaware park. I was working with Bobby K Mac galloping for Bobby K Mac. And I was just decided I hadn't seen Fox in a month. So I was going to come up to Philadelphia Park to check in on him and see how he was doing. And as I was driving up 95, that's when all the signs went that 9-11 at the planes had hit. And I got here and I actually watched 9-11 in the tack room with Peggy and Mike Tazorzakis. And we watched those planes hit. And then I went into a panic realizing I was on the other side of the river. The Delaware River splits Pennsylvania and New Jersey. And then I was freaking out about how much I going to go to my kids. But. <laughs> yeah, it's memories. so funny. I, I mean, it, you just automatically remember like every detail of that day. I swear everybody can just recount minute by minute of 9-11 with their days. And um, yeah, no, I'm sure considering everything was just on pause crazy. and shut down. Getting back but to Fox your kids. in my front field and he's babysitting. I have two weanlings now, two colts and um, just trickling into, into breeding. I, I a horse a long time ago and she was very small so we just made her a riding horse and then um two years ago I just started I'm like you know what I had again turning for home mares that are not placeable you know I had one and I have one that was goofy I'm like well she's so well bred and she won eight races and she's so nice I decided to breed her so you know now I'm kind of dabbling a little bit into to breeding game with some of the these mares that are you know really well bred and nice, obviously sound and nice and retired and so I just started breeding. So Foxy's my babysitter and two mares. So Very cool. Uh, that's mm-hmm. amazing. I love how you've really, truly covered all aspects of the, the industry. So let's get back, though, to you mentioned your heart horse, who this podcast is 
partly about as well as yourself, but Dover Point. And you had said, you had told me that he went through the program and he was one that you had to take back. Talk a little bit about Dover's story. <laughs> the funny thing about Dover is that he has his this, this mind of his own. And the first race he ever won was with um, a bug girl that Amanda Allwater, she actually lost her whip coming down the stretch. So he was like, he was run like he was running off. But now that I know Dover, I just know that if you hit him, you know, and you wanted him to run, he's, you know, most horses just need a little bit of encouragement to, okay, it's time to go. Him, he's going to go if he thinks he's getting away with it. But if you ask him to do something, he's not going to do it. I have so, a, we have a horse <laughs> just like that. But yes, go ahead. Yes. That's his M- MO. So, I mean, he had a decent career. I think he probably ran maybe 20 times or so. He won three races. Um, but Mariah Montoya was his trainer, and, and she's a good friend of mine. I've known her forever. And she called me. And she's like, I think I'm going to put this horse in a program. I might, you know, the owner wants to run him once or twice. There's nothing really wrong. It's, it's sound. So um, she ran him, and he ran not good. And she's like, the owner wants to run one more, Let's try one more time because he's sound. And she literally called me as he's passing the quarter pole, like, a hundred lengths behind the field. He just decided he just didn't want to do it anymore. And she literally called me from the quarter phone. She goes, please come put the, pick up this horse. I'm putting him in the program. I just, I'm done. And it, when we were laughing, so he, he did, he came through the program. We processed him. He had a little epiphysis on his knee, nothing major. Um, and he went out to the farm and the first farm he went to, um, the trainer actually broke her leg on a different horse and called me. She's like, I, you know, this just happened. She had two horses for me and she's like, you know, we need to take back these horses. So I went back and I just, you know, when I went to go moved over again, I was like, I just remembered him. Like he was just such a cool horse. Like he could, he's the kind of horse you could walk right in the stall, rub him all over. He didn't kick. He, if he was eating his alfalfa on the ground, he wouldn't even pick up his head. Oh, you're in here. Just come do what you want. And he has this like really cool tail. <laughs> I don't know. It's just he's got this like flaxen tail and stuff. And I just remember him being, and he had those nice short can of bones that I like for the game horses. And he just was like built like this little solid little chunk. So I, when I was getting ready to take him to the next farm, I'm like you know what, I really, I said I want to bring this one home. You know, me and the kids can play with it, with him. And uh, so I brought him back. And my kids, because I have my two daughters would barrel race with me. And my daughters hated him. I figured, you know, I'll get him broke. I'll get him started and I'll give him to Megan. And he's just, like you said, it's just the same way as if you ask him to do something, he won't do it. They just were like, he's bouncy. He's this, he's that. You keep him. And I've kept him for seven years and I love him to death. Well, what do you, what do you do with him? Do you do barrel racing with him? I do everything with him. Yes. I still, I still go to the game shows with the kids and I'll still do the barrels and bowls and, He's actually really good at poles, really good. We're running 21 second set of poles. You know, I'm sure he'd probably be a lot faster if they rode him. But, I'll, you know, he'll do barrels, he'll do poles. We do like the NBHA, the Natural, National Barrel Horse Association. And he's a he's a 2D horse. You know, he might run at the bottom of 1D. Do you know how the Ds work with the barrel racing? I have no idea. You're going to educate me. <laughs> All right. I will explain it. So um, barrel racing – it's it's kind of it is kind of cool. Would just like you would rate races, you know, and create different levels so everybody's competitive. In order to make barrel racing competitive and keep everybody coming out, because you don't want to go out and you know who's going to win every race in your area. Um, the barrel racing association came up with the four divisions. So whoever runs the fastest time is the winner of the one day, and then depending on you know the the association and and the quality, the next second day might be like a half a second behind 
the one D and the three D would be had another half a second behind that. And then maybe they'll give one whole second to the four D so that even um, horses that consistently run slower, you might run two seconds behind the fastest time. You can still win four D money. So you can still compete in your class and, you know, make money and be part of it. Even if say you have like a 40 horse or a, like I said, I, my horse is pretty much a 2D horse, but I can still go in and I can win. So that's the way they do it to keep it competitive and split up the money. Obviously, it's, it's weighted heavier so that the faster horses are going to win more of the pot. But still, it's a four day you can go and you can go to a bow race and spend $35 to go to a bow race and maybe come home with a couple hundred dollars in your pocket, you know, well, or oh, what no. is wrong with me? I've been doing English and dressage and all I came home <laughs> with were ribbons <laughs> and maybe a medal. Oh, and you spent a lot of money on those. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for a hundred dollars every time. Um, well, oh. th- I think I might have to take up uh, barrel racing then. Um, I don't know why they don't do it with the jumpers. I think maybe they do some jumper derbies. You know, any time oh, sure. race could do it. You know, yeah. So, um, yeah, when you get to the higher levels, obviously the, the money is 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 out there, but still not. Not as accessible, I would say, as the uh, barrel racers, but that's that's really cool. So he so he is fairly quick and, and good at them, um, based upon his rating. So yeah. he he is now. You mentioned that you like to have a lot of the bay mares, but he stands out. <laughs> I mean, there's no camouflaging him. The chestnut no, with the white face. He's the chestnut with the white face and the big flaxen tail. And the funny thing is I go to all these um, barrel races and all, and they will swear he's a quarter horse. I mean, he's just nice and thick now. He's not like that, you know, his thoroughbred fit build. He's big and he's thick and he's got, the, like I said, those short cannon bones and his hocks are a little bit lower to the ground and, and he's quick and agile. And people like will ask me and they know that I, they know that I do all check thoroughbreds and they know we're always trying to get new thoroughbreds into the Western um, world and they know that I ride, you know, a lot of different thoroughbreds too. I br- always have a baby I'm bringing up and playing with, but they'll still swear to me, is that, you know, is that a quarter horse? Is that a quarter horse? Because I wonder why I'm on a quarter horse. But no, I'm like, he's a thoroughbred. And uh, and we've been really successful with a lot of the thoroughbreds going into the gaming. And uh, my daughter actually was just in Kentucky and had the, on two different thoroughbreds, had the two fastest times of the tip barrel championship. We're always working with them and bringing them along. So she, I love the retired uh, racehorse makeover. I think it does a lot to, especially like from my standpoint, horses directly off the racetrack. I think it helps us move horses, you know, into good trainers' hands. And that's what's important. Like I said, you know, we take back horses all the time. I've never really had to take horses back from like, you know, those upper level trainers because when you put that basic education on the horses and you start them right, they're not going to come back because they have, you know, they're, they're transitioned well. And they can go into the, you know, the next adoptive home. So the RP helps us get, you know, horses right from the racetrack on into good trainers' hands that are going to spend a year, you know, transitioning them. And then those horses seem like they're set for life. They really, you know, they're they're easy to get along with. They know their job. And then that um, more novice person can take them over and have success. How many horses? Obviously, it was a double year with um, the RP being paused because of COVID. How many horses did Turning for Home have down there? Uh, I think we ended up with like 15 competing. That's amazing. I know at one time we had like 27 entered. And then, you know, last minute, you know, people, you know, it was abscesses or money or, you know, just different things happening where some of the horses, you know, last minute, you know, you're planning two years for a show. So, 
there was a lot of attrition this year. But yeah, we ended up, we had, uh, I think it was five horses that made the top 10, you know, which was really nice. We had, you know, uh, Susan Thomas in eventing and we had uh, uh, Katie in, I think she was third in eventing and she actually had a horse that she did eventing and barrels in. Um, and we had uh, that horse, Dyer Maker, was in the top five in dressage. He came through our program. And uh, we had a horse in the Western, not had nothing to do with me, <laughs> but we had a horse in that Western riding that finished third with, you know, with the cattle and, and the ranch riding. So, yeah, no, we had a good showing. And like I said, I mean, it's great for them to get there and to show well. But more importantly, I want to say the last two October, the last four or five Octobers, which is usually our worst month for adoptions because people are done their show year and then they're going into winter. So they're not looking now in October, November, our adoptions spike. I mean, as many as like 30 or 40 a month up increase because people are even if, you know, they're, they're going to see if these, they can get these horses to go to the makeover. And even if they filter through them and they say, Oh, this horse isn't going to be what I thought it was. They're still finding them good homes. So, you know, we follow them along. So Yeah. RP has done a lot for our adoptions, like right off the racetrack with the horses, you know, in their first year leaving. So it's been a very good thing for us. But I focus on the Western horses. Um, we've done different expos in Harrisburg and in the in Pennsylvania farm shows. We've taken the thoroughbreds there. And I love to show people that, you know, thoroughbreds, you don't have to peg hold them as, you know, eventers and hunter jumpers, that they can do everything. You know, they can. They can go and they can do the cows. We do a lot of team panning and sorting. Like you asked what I do at Dover. I, I ride Dover probably three nights a week. And one day's, you know, ranch sorting. Another day I'm just trail riding. And another day I'm, you know, going to the game shows with the kids and helping them riding poles and barrels. So, you know, these horses. And, they, and I actually have fox hunted Dover. And I, like I said, we've done a little bit of polo. I mean, we've done everything. He's not too into jumping, but he will do anything we ask. Yeah, I've I've had my fair share of, of thoroughbreds that are just kind of like, I don't really want to jump. You know, sometimes you put an obstacle in front of them and they just get it, and then other ones are like, "Wait, what?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. want me to do up. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, getting back to Dover, I I always try to ask these kind of rapid fire questions. Um, so we'll start with what's his favorite treat anything anything he will he knows where they are in the trailer he smells them in my pockets and any whatever you have wafers mints carrots he'll eat anything piece of bread half your sandwich yeah he just he smells it he knows you have it actually he thinks he deserves it as soon as he does anything he's looking for you looking for it (laughs) the old turn around (laughs) like okay you're gonna give it to me right let's say like he's a, a person like you're going out have a drink what would his drink of choice be Oh, Dover's definitely like just a beer dude. He's just going to have maybe, maybe an IPA, but he's definitely like low key. He's, he's going to always be in charge of his self and his situation. So he's not going to go for the whiskey. He's yeah. He's just going to have the beer and and he's going to lead the crowd. Absolutely. No tequila, no clothes coming off, no debauchery from, from Dover. Um, What, so what's his favorite thing to do with you? Uh, He's, like I said, we he he's they all laugh because I've drowned him a few times, but Dover's always a lead on all the trails. So he'll he'll go back and get any horses that won't go across, you know, the river or the obstacle or whatever. And like I said, and because of that and because he's so willing to actually trust me and go where I tell him to go, I have sunk him a few times. So 
<laughs> uh, what's his least favorite thing to do? Uh, probably jumping. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, you look at a course. Actually, um, I had to put him on cows because I couldn't get him to the third barrel just trying to do ring work. He's not going to do ring work for you. He's never, he would never be any sort of equitation horse because he's, and, and I find this with a lot of the thoroughbreds is that they're just so smart. They don't want to be drilled. They're so willing to please and they're so smart about what they do that tell them what to do, teach them when they think they have it right. They, they, okay, they, we got it. You know, we're done here. And that's exactly how he is. So you know, when we first start riding him and just doing circles, he's like, I, I know how to do this and don't drill me. And I think that's probably why he didn't really like racing. Maybe he thought, thought it was a little pointless. Okay, I did this. I won this. I, you know, I, I mean, I think he'd be game for anything the first time. Like, let's accomplish this. Let's try something new. He, I think he's going to do that. But I think with a lot of the thoroughbreds, I see people, I always tell them, I don't drill them. You know, you're going to teach them something new, teach them, and then move on. Yep. Get Let them get it right and then move on. Know, let them know that they've done well. Yes. Oh, and it's kind of, I'm glad you said that because my next question, I always, you know, I sometimes catch people off guard with it, but I, I love the answers that I get. And the question is, what has Dover or just thoroughbreds in general taught you about life? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> succeed and, and move on. Um, yeah. yeah, like, you know, life is, there's uh, there's some quote about, you know, change and and uh, change is good and, and life is a river and life has to move on and not to be stagnant. You know, there's always change is not, it is scary, but change is always good because you never know what, you know, even, even unfortunately when something bad happens, when, you know, the, the next door opens, something's going to be great behind it. And I think, you know, horses see that and we see that and just the adventure, the life, life's an adventure and it's a river and it should be constantly moving and, you know, Dover's definitely on me with that, where we're not just going to keep doing the same thing again and again. It's no fun. Well, I think that sums up our entire conversation, too, Danielle, just with your life and how you've been able to travel and do everything on the racetrack and raise a beautiful family and have your daughters involved and be so successful with what you've done uh, at Turning for Home. It just really job well done and your whole outlook with Dover included uh, on life is is really great and I obviously appreciate your time and coming on today. Oh thank you for having me so much Maggie. I appreciate it and I appreciate your support of turning for home and uh, you know we're we're just excited to be here for these great horses because this is what we all love about this right no matter if we're doing racing or jumping, or anything. It's all about these horses and we're just blessed to be able to do this with them. You're so right. And really quick, if people want to learn more about Turning for Home, if they want to get involved in the adoption process, if they want to help you um, with donations, where can they go? What can they do? They can go to turningforhome.org. We have a page set up for how to help where they can make donations any which way through PayPal or, you know, through Venmo or, or what, what, you know, whatever. So turningforhome.org is the place to go. Our applications are there if they want to fill out an application. Um, what we do with our applications is when it comes in and people list their criteria and their experience, we kind of get a ballpark for what they're looking for. We send it out to all the different, you know, partner farms up and down the East Coast. And then those farms will get back and say, you know, they'll they'll say, you know, we had this horse available. So 
You can go fill an application if you're looking to adopt. You can find all of our contact information there. You can make donations there. So turningforhome.org. And then also we're on Twitter and Facebook. And it's a really nice website and very easy to navigate as I've checked it out myself. So again, thank you and tremendous job. Thank you. Have a great day. Pennsylvania bread we've had on for the last two episodes. Obviously, Paige McKenney last week and Dover Point this time around. But to Danielle, the first guest I've had that actually does Western with her horse, Dover. And I'd like to reach out to anybody listening. If you know anybody or yourself, if you have an OTTB that does a Western discipline, I'd love to hear from you because it's an area that I just honestly haven't explored much. I don't kind of travel in those circles of the Western pleasure or barrel racing or games as Danielle was talking about. So I'd love to explore that a little bit more. So I'm asking all of you for a little help in that department, but as always, asking for a little help in supporting our good friends at the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation. As always, if you want to help out, check out TRF Inc. Dot org slash off track.